Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, how do you feel about your body? This question can open up an avalanche of answers focused on the majority of the time, basically on our looks, right? Rather than what our body does and what our body can do. Body image, our attitudes and our behaviors related to our bodies can infiltrate how we see ourselves, but also how we engage in the world. Many of you might not know this, but a million years ago, when I was getting my PhD and writing my qualifying papers and my dissertation to graduate, body image was front and center in what I was studying. In fact, I wrote a book about body image and girls after graduating based on my dissertation, which was published by Harlequin in 2010. And it was called Good Girls Don't Get Fat, How Weight Obsession is Messing Up Our Girls and How We Can Help Them Thrive Despite It. So I was in there. I had been putting the final touches on that book when we adopted my daughter, who's now 12. And so all of this body talk has renewed personal meaning for me right now. Shortly after my book was published, I met two young dynamos who spoke my language, Lindsay and Lexi Kite, who were starting their own body revolution to help people see their bodies as instruments, not ornaments. Something that helped us engage in the world and, and show ourselves as beautiful and interesting and in all kinds of fundamental ways, rather than like our bodies are just there to be looked at or primped or sadly criticized. While we have had a larger net cast around body acceptance these days, we're certainly talking about it more. We still have a long way to go. How does body image impact our kids today? And is it just the girls or can the boys get in on this conversation too? Of course. And as parents and educators and as coaches, how can we support a world that helps to see our kids' bodies as instruments rather than ornaments? For that, we're going to turn to Dr. Lindsay and Dr. Lexi Kite. Dr. Lindsay Kite and Dr. Lexi Kite are identical twins and co-authors of the book, More Than a Body. Your body is an instrument, not an ornament, and co-directors of the nonprofit Beauty Redefined. They both received PhDs from the University of Utah in the study of female body image and have become leading experts in body image resilience and media literacy. Authors of numerous studies and books have cited Lindsay and Lexi's original research, and they have been featured in a variety of national media outlets, including the New York Times, Vanity Fair, the Boston Globe, Slate, 
shape, glamour, and more. Lindsay and Lexi help girls and women recognize and reject the harmful effects of objectification in their lives. Through their significant social media reach, online body image resilience course, and facilitator program for dietitians and therapists, their popular book, More Than a Body, and regular speaking engagements for thousands of people of all ages. I want to welcome Drs. Lindsay and Lexi Kite to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Hi, Dr. Robin. Hi, thank you for having us. We're so thrilled to have you. I'm really excited. It's been like a million years since oh, yeah. we first met. I, I mean, so much has happened and and you guys have had have such a great voice in this world. I'm so excited to have you on the show. But before we get into the main topic of our conversation, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in creating a movement that helps people to see their bodies as instruments, not ornaments? Yeah, we just have such a passion for helping women to see themselves as more than just bodies. We found through so many years, through our childhood and our adolescent years, and especially through high school and early college, we just felt so defined by our bodies. It was this constant preoccupation with losing weight in, you know, enhancing your appearance in whatever way. And we just truly felt like that was the key to happiness, health, success, ability to be loved, all of these things that everybody wants. And it kind of fit in with this media narrative that was sold to women that by looking a certain way, you can feel a certain way and be accepted more. And so it was this constant pursuit um, of beauty that was really never ending. And I think that's why it spoke to us so deeply when we were both sitting in separate college classrooms. We were trying so hard to not be such identical twins at college. <laughs> it obviously didn't work. Um, but we were in separate classrooms. It was a class for journalists um, called Media Smarts. And the section about women and women's representation in media, the ways bodies and beauty were so cohesively defined in ways that were extremely thin, young, tan, no visible flaws in quotes. And it was just so clear to us that that is the reason why we felt so abnormal, so obsessed with our bodies and why everyone else did too, regardless of how they looked. Mm -hmm. I think that really sparked something in us and, and just really contributed to this passion toward helping girls and women feel comfortable in their bodies so that they can get out and see more and be more in themselves and other people and in their whole lives. Yeah. We often ask this question. We want people to really consider what they have lost in their life because of feeling so defined by and confined by their bodies, but also what has the world lost? Mm -hmm. What has the world lost from girls and women sitting on the sidelines of our lives? Because we feel like we don't qualify to be seen as we are. What has the world lost? And in exchange, what does the world have to gain? And what do individuals have to gain to be able to live and experience life in our incredible bodies, regardless of how they work, regardless of how they look, because we are so much more. And when we all can work on believing that, oh my gosh, the possibilities, the progress, it just, it opens up in really amazing ways. I think that's so beautifully said uh, by both of you. And it, it really does define the problem that there are losses on all sides here. And I often think about what that child, that teenager, that woman, or that man might've accomplished mm -hmm. if they weren't so focused on how do I look while I'm engaging in this activity? And 
to the degree of, and we'll talk about this later, maybe I should just not engage in that activity at all. And then yeah. everything is lost. But before we get into all of that, because we'll talk about that later, this whole idea of doubling, which I thought um, I think is fascinating. I, I certainly have written about that idea as well, but it's, it's something that we've got to, to, to talk about more. I want to know from you what the end goal is here. Is it body positivity? Is it resilience? You talk about these things in your book. Is it resilience to the negative onslaught about varying bodies? Is it inclusivity? Maybe we need to define some terms, uh, this idea of body positivity versus resilience, and then how we can then aim for whatever it is that we're hoping to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big question and one that kind of gets to the heart of the problem that hasn't effectively been solved by so many other interventions and solutions over the last, you know, 15 or so years. A lot of people are aware that girls and women are suffering when we are so obsessed with our bodies and feeling so negatively toward our bodies. I think people are really aware that that is an issue. It's a problem that needs to be solved. And so all of these popular interventions and messaging over the last 15 or so years, they tend to sound the same way and they can all kind of, um, they've all culminated, I think, in the popular body positivity that you'll see on social media. And it gets co-opted by companies and brands all the time and Mm -hmm. people who may not genuinely really mean that all bodies are good bodies, but they still will share this messaging that really resonates with people that all bodies are beautiful. Your flaws make you beautiful. Um, You're more beautiful than you think you are. A lot of those ideas go into um, just some of the really popular campaigns around body image and they resonate with people and they feel good. And we do believe that they are a good first step to normalize body diversity. I think that's one of the things that body positivity does really well um, and could stand to do better, especially in terms of um, women who are not white, who are not um, hourglass or pear-shaped or, you know, curvy in all the right ways. Mm -hmm. But we have seen, especially through social media, and that has bled over into advertising and popular media more, a variety of shapes and sizes and looks of people that are presented in positive lights, um, not seen as abnormal, but still being celebrated for how they look rather than for who people are. And I think that's one of the ruts that we get into when we're so focused on all bodies are beautiful is we're still keeping the conversation at the level of beauty, this very surface level that keeps people thinking about, am I beautiful? Should, can I maintain this level of beauty and this feeling of, of confidence and beauty that I have right now? And that is something that ebbs and flows in such huge and dramatic ways in this objectifying culture that consistently reminds us we're not quite beautiful enough. Like, good for you. You feel good. And you saw this message and were around someone who made you feel good. But the next message you see is going to remind you that, you know, once you get on this diet and lose a little more weight, then you'll really be confident. Then you'll have the ability to be loved and desired. And so we're constantly back to this state of normative discontent where most girls and women are uncomfortable in their bodies, thinking negative thoughts about them and self-objectifying this doubling that you talked about, where we're imagining our bodies from the outside, constantly monitoring them rather than being fully focused and in the moment, regardless of what we're doing, even when we're alone. And so we feel like the real solution isn't so much body positivity, though that's a stepping point on the way to it. We call it body image resilience. 
It's the ability to recognize the harmful messages, the objectification that is absolutely all around us in this culture, and that is likely not going anywhere because there's so much profit to be made off of women believing that our bodies are the most important thing about us and all people believing that about women and increasingly so for boys and men, people of all genders. Mm -hmm. But we feel that body image resilience is this continuous process. It's like a muscle that you build mm -hmm. that becomes easier and easier over time as you recognize the things that trigger your body shame, that cause you to self-objectify and to sit out and hide and fix and all of these ways that we cope in ways that don't help us and that keep us in this, this state of normative discontent in our bodies. But with resilience, you, you feel those moments of disruption, we call disruption to your body image that make the shame come up. And instead of coping in the same ways you always have, like going on a diet or um, getting a procedure or even planning for a procedure or a diet or self-harm or, or substance use, all of these things that we do that do not improve our lives or our body image, at least not for any meaningful amount of time. Body image resilience allows you to see those moments of disruption and consciously make the choice that you are going to come back home to your body instead of splitting from yourself and washing yourself from the outside. So we think of it as this continuous process, but also a muscle that you build that allows these disruptions to not sting so much every time mm -hmm. that make your life easier. And we like the fact that a lot of people feel like they fail at body positivity because they don't and can't love their bodies and love their looks at all times. Mm -hmm. And we feel like body image resilience kind of takes up where body positivity kind of leaves people hanging where they feel like they can't quite make it. Body image resilience is banking on the fact that you will feel, you will feel moments of shame. You will, will feel self-conscious regularly. That is just built into this objectifying world we live in. And yet those are opportunities. We see them through this growth mindset as, as that opportunity, that spark to come back home to yourself, to choose a new way of coping, of proving yourself wrong and getting up and getting out and living anyway. And there's so much growth and power in that. You know, you had this beautiful section in your book about writing a letter to your little girl. Um, and, and in the light of this whole idea of body disruption, that moment when things kind of got derailed and you went in the, in a different direction because body image was really negative. It, it kind of defined what you, you did. So can you talk a little bit more about that feeling of disruption, like pinpointing that from when you're younger and then how you can then go back and look at that section in of time in a, in a different way and write a letter to that little girl so that you are saying the things that you really needed to hear back then. Yeah, absolutely. So we use this metaphor in our book um, that starts out, we ask people to imagine themselves when they were young, before they were self-conscious, before they were embarrassed of their bodies, to picture themselves playing on the beach and if you can't picture yourself to think about your child, think about the kids that you care for or teach, um, those young little kids that are not yet self-conscious of their bodies. And we, we ask people to, to think back to that time and to start to remember when they started to split from themselves, to watch themselves from the outside, to monitor and evaluate and judge their bodies according to 
oftentimes their worst fears of what they thought other people might be thinking when they look at them. People are, little kids are invited to split from themselves and are invited into this objectifying world, into the water. We call it the waters of objectification in a million ways, a million ways that often feel benign from people that love them. They're invited into the water when they hear their mom or dad talk about, oh, I shouldn't eat that. I've gained so much weight over the holidays. My pants don't even fit anymore. Or they hear little kids at school that are bullying the kid that is fat or bullying the kid that is too skinny. Bullying it can, it can actually also be even in a positive seeming in a positive way. Oh, yeah. I remember being at the beach and I heard a mom, uh, say to her daughter, Oh, I wish I had a flat stomach like you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it, 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 I don't look like that anymore. But like, so it was, it looked like a, a comment that was positive framed right on the body image. And I just knew it was one of those moments that oh, yeah. you just capture in a can and just go, Oh, that's, that's going to be brought up again. Exactly. In so many of the women we talked to in our research identified moments like that. It was moments that were seemingly compliments where moms were comparing themselves to daughters or where a grandparent would talk about how big they're getting or, you know, comment on their bodies changing during puberty, even in a complimentary or a positive seeming way. And it brings this awareness that you are being watched, that you are a sexualized being, that your body is an object to be admired. And this is what causes that split where you kind of watch yourself for the rest of your life and you don't notice that it's happening. It, it becomes invisible. It's just such a normal way of life for so many girls and women to constantly be a bit self-conscious and to have part of our mental and physical energy drained away by this preoccupation with how we look. And so when we are in this process of building our body image resilience, one of the first and best ways to do that is by tapping back into that sense of self, your younger little self before that self-consciousness kicked in. What would you say to her to warn her about what's coming, to talk to her about what you really know about her, her true worth and value, her purpose and meaning that extends so far beyond how she looks? How can we tap back into that sense of self in these same bodies that we still inhabit today, these bodies that we were born into, that we will live every second of our lives in, and yet we kind of think of them as burdens and embarrassments when we look back on our little kid pictures and know that they are incredible and perfect and a gift to be grateful for. And when we can reconnect with that little inner child, I think that helps speed the healing process. And especially in those moments of body image disruption, where we're feeling such shame, where we're feeling that self-comparison and that urge to hide and fix, when we can look down at our bodies and remember that we are sitting here in the exact same bodies we were born in, the same bodies we had as little kids with similar features and experiences, then I think that allows us to remember this sense of home in our bodies that is so lost as we disconnect from ourselves in an objectifying environment. We ask people to, to literally take on the practice of writing a letter to that little you. Lindsay wrote about this in the book. She shared the letter she wrote to herself. Anybody who's done inner child work in therapy, this probably sounds familiar, but to be able to heal our body image now, it truly takes being able to reunite with ourselves from that moment when we split. It takes being able to go back to little Lexi, who in second grade um, started realizing that my legs were bigger than all my friends and kneeling um, in a circle at reading time and looking around and thinking, why am I so embarrassing? Why am I so wrong? What am I doing wrong? And being able to go back to that little Lexi and 
actually talk to her, like look at a picture of me, look at my own daughters who look just like me and being able to treat myself how I needed to have treated myself. Then I am good. I am okay. Body diversity is real. It does not mean I'm bad that my legs are bigger than my friends. It means these are the legs that I was born into from genetics, from a long line of people. Some of them probably had legs that look just like mine. Mm -hmm. And to be able to go back and heal that person in that long line of, of lineage of genes that I need to honor and not degrade. And as we can reconnect with ourselves and heal ourselves, it allows us to interact with children in a more compassionate and loving and less objectifying way. It's very important to do this kind of work. I, I remember somebody had said something to me. I don't remember who it was right now, but it stuck with me where they said to imagine yourself holding the hand of your child. And when you're criticizing yourself, imagine those little ears hearing what you're saying. Oh, and, yeah. and so understanding that these messages are being sent to our kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might not be as conscious as, you know, saying the words directly to your child about your child. But yeah. when we say them about ourselves or we grunt at ourselves, when we look in the mirror, we mm-hmm. grab our grab our thighs and, and in, in a way that is internal in our yeah. minds, but, but is obvious to what that second grader, that third grader, that fourth grader is seeing yeah. um, when they're in their room. It, it's, it's just remembering that that child is, is next to you as part of you. And, right. and by doing that, you become more conscious and also understanding that when you are saying those words to your child, even in that positive way, it seems like it's positive. What is the underlying message? You know, while your stomach is flat, you are beautiful. You are something to be admired. And what happens when that child goes through puberty and starts to become more rounded, it becomes very obvious that that could be a time when the message from when that child was in kindergarten or first grade or second grade and on the beach with their mom, that can come right back into play. Right. Well, now mom wouldn't want to look at it, look like me anymore. Well, it's really hard to hide your value system as an adult from kids, because if your values are that you value thinness and you devalue fatness, if fatness is a moral wrong, if fatness is something that is embarrassing everybody's going to get a little bit fat. Our bodies are going to change over time. They're they're going to vary from the ideal, especially from a prepubescent ideal that is so valued for Mm -hmm. girls and women. Right. Um, When little kids are hearing that stuff, we think it's so innocent. We think it's so benign for us to talk about our own bodies because of course we're not talking about our daughters or our son's bodies. We're just talking about ourselves and, or even about celebrities or people we see on the street, people we haven't seen since high school. And they hear the comments of, oh, she gained some weight, you know, or, Mm -hmm. or she got this procedure done. That value system is so apparent. And as adults, we have to be incredibly critical and conscious of how we value bodies, not just our own bodies, but everybody else's it sinks into them. Hmm. Yeah. You talk about in your book, how body negativity can creep into our consciousness and our dialogue when we're dealing with our bodies from head to toe. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the messages 
so that people can be a little bit more clear about this. What are some of the messages our kids may hear or gain about bodies from head to toe, all like different areas of their bodies? We might not even think about it. And what are the messages that we can kind of counter those with instead when it comes to hair or tummies or something else? What are some of the messages that they're getting and what, what are some counter messages we can send? In our book and in our work, we want to uh, really make explicit the implicit messages that we get from the time we are just little. And so we do an inventory from the roots in our hair, the very top of our head, down to the bottoms of our feet. What are all of the messages we are getting? Because there is billions of dollars at play every year in companies manufacturing our flaws, like literally diagnosing new flaws and then manufacturing the solutions to those flaws. So it is so important to help kids understand this very early on. One of the best ways to do that is by pointing out how normalized and one dimensional the ideals are for girls, but not for boys for women, but not for men. Um, And so you can kind of set up this dichotomy when you're watching shows with kids and you see that there are very few female protagonists. There are very few girl characters that move the plot forward. And that when they do, a lot of times they all look the same. Mm -hmm. They all have these one dimensional features where the girls always have big eyes and a little nose, you know, stuff that you talk about, these princess ideals. And yet the male characters, They get to be anything you can conceive of in the world. They're the reindeer. They're the snowman. They are the huge man, but nobody talks about him as being fat or undesirable or wrong. But girls have to conform to these very specific ideals to be represented positively at all. And so you can point that out. You can say, huh, I wonder why there aren't any girls doing anything in this show. Or I wonder why the boys talk so much more than the girls in this show. I wonder why all the girls have to look the same. Have you noticed that? When you point out these types of things, you set kids up to be critical of every message they're consuming. And that, you know, leads into as they're going through puberty and they start growing hair. And you can talk about the fact that for women, uh, advertising agencies, media makers, the beauty and fashion industry has set up very strict guidelines for what it looks like to be a woman. And you can talk about how outrageous it is to have thick eyebrows, thick, long eyelashes, but below your eyes, we have been told we are not supposed to have a single ounce of hair. How outrageous is that? (laughs) And when you can talk about these ideals, make them outrageous and then show them what normal is, show them reality, show them yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah, when they can see how specific and cohesive the ideals are in all of the media we see, even in animated cartoon media, then that can help them to question it. So just plant those seeds from an early age. Like Lexi mentioned, one of the princess ideals is the big eyes and the yeah. teeny tiny nose. And <laughs> it's not, it's not even just princesses, you know, it's in every single kid's yeah. show. All of the female characters have a teeny tiny nose. So when that's a simple thing to do with your kids to say, look at all the noses, how much 
how much variety is there in the noses? And they might be able to pinpoint that all the girls' noses are teeny, teeny, tiny. And then in real life, you can say, do you know anybody who has a nose like that? No, Mm -hmm. we have all different sizes of noses and different shapes. And isn't that cool that noses are all different? These people who make these movies and shows, they're not very creative, are they? I think we should give them some ideas of what noses really look like. And then you get to draw or sculpt or Mm -hmm. paint all the different types of noses you see or that you could be creative and imagine. Mm. Oh, I love that. And I I really like the hands-on idea. This this media can be extremely troublesome. We know that media is playing a huge role in the world. Although, of course, as you've mentioned, just by doing these types of exercises, the words of parents and those closest to them can be instrumental, to use your word, to to helping to alleviate some of that impact. And and people talk about this with me often that, well, how can I, how can I, compete with this like the you know the the media perfect it's so very pervasive it's 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 so big it's they've got all the money they're they're sending these messages it's happening 24 7 yes absolutely but you live in your house you teach these children each day you are the superhero in their lives if you're coaching a child and what you say really does matter when you bring to light they may recall you know, hearing what you said about noses and not even remember which movie it was because what you said is so instrumental. So I want to bring it around to something in your book that you talk about happened to be coincided, uh, coinciding with when, uh, right around when my book came out, which was, uh, when the Kelly Clarkson cover of self magazine came out, uh, that was a, towards the end of 2009 happened to be the body confidence issue. Kelly Clarkson is known for her body confidence at any size. And the magazine, uh, put Kelly on the, their body confidence issue and then slimmed her down beyond recognition. Uh, for those of you who may not be able to place Kelly Clarkson, she was the, uh, season one winner of American Idol. She's become a superstar with so many incredible songs. She's, uh, she's got an incredible voice and should be known for that in particular. So when the magazine was challenged on this fact, <laughs> slimming this superstar <laughs> Um, they, they had said that they were only trying to make Kelly look her personal best, personal best. Yeah. So the irony there is amazing. So I would like you to tell us like, if something like that happens or even that example, because Kelly Clarkson is still a superstar in the eyes of young people. So it's not like you can't use this very example, but whether it's this example or another one that comes out because they come out all the time. It's not like the media is hard up by, you know, not giving this kind of information to us all the time. How can we then open up conversations about body image and media and Photoshopping um, and, and, and the role that it plays in how we, the consumer, think about ourselves and about others? It's a great question. I think it is so important to help kids and ourselves understand that it is an industry standard, even in uh, female celebrities contracts, that they will not be on camera without a filtered lens, amazing lighting, Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes CGI flaw removal on live TV. Like as the camera is moving, flaws can be erased. Mm -hmm. The technology these days is incredible and uh, terrifying. Mm -hmm. 
And it is so important for kids to understand that what they are viewing on social media and in entertainment media, it has been manipulated. This is not reality. Even, you know, when we're on Zoom or when we are filming our own selfies, you cannot see three dimensions. You cannot see somebody's actual pores usually. Like our faces are flattened. They're flattened through screens. And when you can help kids really know that every image, even the ones from people they know and love, are likely filtered, edited, cropped. They are the highlight reel. It sets them up to, again, be more critical. You know, most kids think they can spot Photoshopping. Most adults think, yeah, 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 I know things are Photoshopped, so I can be smarter than that. And the truth is that our brains don't quite work like that. Our brains can't process that every image we're seeing is a flat, filtered version of reality. So it is so important to be honest with kids about what they're actually viewing. Yeah, we've got to start those conversations extremely early and we need to plant the seeds of a critical eye in kids. They have the ability to listen and watch and to recognize that what they're seeing has been altered in some way and that there are reasons for why it's been altered. I think that's where the conversations need to start is this very basic, broad idea that is important for adults and children alike, that in this environment where people want us to buy things, they want us to believe that our beauty is the most important thing about us. And then they define beauty in ways that is really, really hard to reach. So when you tell little kids that, you know, they, they want us to think that girls are only beautiful and nothing else. And that the way for girls to be loved and happy is to be beautiful. But in real life, we know that's not true. We know that you can look any different way and do any different thing and be happy and loved and everything else. We love people who look all kinds of different ways. And so when you can plant the idea that they're being lied to, that they're being manipulated in some ways, you know, once it's age appropriate, I think even like five and six years old, it's, Mm -hmm. it's appropriate to have conversations with kids to tell them what you're seeing in media. They want you to buy things. They're going to want you to buy these toys, but also these princess makeup kits and dress up kits, and they'll keep us for the rest of our lives. But we're going to try really, really hard in our family to know that we are so valuable and worthy, regardless of how we look. And we're going to take care of ourselves because our bodies are instruments, not ornaments. It's a message that resonates with kids. And not to mention that these conversations, you know, right now, I feel like people may be imagining having that conversation with their little girl. But of course, anybody needs to have this conversation with any kid, right? Because we need we need these other people in our lives to to realize that that these are messages that are being sent, especially to young girls. And that they can also then say, well, that's ridiculous. And also, I'm not looking for uh, to, to I'm not looking to perpetuate that that myth and 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 see girls in this way either, even if I am not a girl. So it's yeah. really important to have these conversations with your children, regardless of gender. Uh, because uh, we all need help. Everybody's going to need help in this department to, to 
to bust this myth to say that we're not going to sell this bill of goods, especially to our boys who are receiving messages that they should be seeking out girls to look like, you know, that, that look like this, that they, that that's girls, how girls exist in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of relationships that you should be seeking these very doctored up fake looking relationships that are are put out. So wouldn't you agree that this is the kind of conversation that we should be opening up with our children, regardless of gender? Oh, absolutely. I, it is as important for boys to understand this as girls, because I mean, not only are these kids growing up to be the decision makers, to be the potential change makers or to reinforce the status quo, but they have so much power right now to change the dynamics, to change the sexism that we're all starting to work on overthrowing you know, and have been for years. But with the Me Too movement, you know, with a kind of a, in some ways, a feminist revolution that is continuing, there, we're seeing social change happening in real time. And these kids are the ones doing it. Like I see a lot of hope in these younger generations being able to break through these gender binaries that kept girls in this, in this little bubble and boys in this other little bubble. Mm -hmm. I, I think there is so much hope to be had that these kids, they can get it. They are born with a more critical eye because they are born with more access to information and knowledge and experts than any of us ever had. I also think it's important for us to be having these conversations with everyone in our circles of influence about, you know, girls are more than bodies. We are all more than bodies to be looked at and fixed and judged because some of the worst perpetrators of this sexist objectification are the people we know and love the most. Like it's our moms, it's our, it's our grandpas. It's the uncle we see at Thanksgiving that says, oh, you've been eating really good this year. Look at Mm. you beefing up or, or the brother that says, you know, disgusting things about women's bodies in front of their little sister. Mm. And every time those messages soak in. And so it's up to all of us who care about kids to, to draw boundaries where needed to be able to say, Hey, in this family with my kids, we don't talk like that. We do not talk about people's bodies in this way for good or for bad. I'm trying to teach my kids that they are more than bodies that we all are, that their power and worth extends so far beyond how they appear. So we're not going to have that diet talk here. We're not going to have that body talk here for good or bad. Being able to do that sets people up to talk to girls differently, to compliment them about different things, to ask them questions instead of constantly go to, you're so pretty, look at that dress. Oh, I bet the boys are just lining up, you know, those Mm -hmm. things that relegate girls to the pretty sidekicks of their lives. It just, it sets up this new paradigm shift where beauty can't make us and it also can't break us. We are more. Mm. Mm. Yes. Thank you for that. Uh, I, I actually had a situation recently where my, my daughter was asked, oh, you know, oh, I bet you all the boyfriends are coming after you at, uh-huh. you know, yeah, age 12. And that's, yeah, it is something that needs to be discussed and nipped in the bud right away. Uh, because you know, that they're, that it's sending that message right away to that child in a moment, in a flash. And we've got to have those conversations. Now you, you do talk about in your book that there are some questions, there's some mantras, there are things that we can be saying uh, or asking of our children so that they are 
consistently questioning what they're seeing, that they have messages in their minds when they are seeing them. Um, we were just talking a little bit about the, you know, the cartoons and the noses and the, you know, that, that kind of media, but also the social media that they're starting to get on earlier and earlier. You talk about some pros and cons, like let's start kind of looking at pros and cons of why we're on social media, being aware, eyes open, that there are some negative stuff that you're going to be seeing. And it may start this kind of selfie objectification. Can you talk a little bit more about the conversations we need to be having related to some of the social media that our kids are going to be getting on this idea of this selfie objectification and maybe what kind of things we need to be saying or questions we can be providing so that they go into it, understanding that they need to be in control of, of how they interpret this information. Yeah, definitely. We know that kids are really inclined and tempted to get on social media, especially at earlier and earlier ages as kids have access to cell phones. And as parents and coaches and teachers, we need to be really straightforward with them about why they want to get in on social media and the potential harms that could come from it, as well as the potential positive sides of it, because it's not all just one big, scary, negative thing. We don't want kids to think that they have, you know, this unfettered access to a world of evil. We want them to know that there's some good stuff there and we want to help them find it. So as kids are approaching an age where social media becomes more acceptable, you know, 12, 13, we hope that people can hold their kids off as long as humanly possible. Honestly, if they didn't have access until they were in high school, I think that would be mm -hmm. ideal. Um, but we recognize that it is difficult. But as you're starting to have those conversations with kids, we recommend making a pros and cons list about why they want to be on Instagram or TikTok or whatever the platform is. And some of the pros might be, I get to see my friends. I get to talk to people after school. I get to see celebrities or musicians or influencers that are cool and are involved in things I like. You might be exposed to new ideas, new activities, hobbies, things like that. All great things. On the cons side of the list, if they don't already come up with them, you can help prompt and provide ideas like, well, I know in my own experience with, uh, with Instagram and, um, and also from research that I've read about, that people who are on social media a lot tend to be more self-conscious of their bodies, especially for girls. And we know that girls actually spend a lot more time on social media than boys do. And this shows up in some ways that are sometimes kind of hard and hurtful. So it causes people to be self-conscious of their bodies and to compare themselves with ideals that we know just aren't real. Here's what the filters look like. Here's what it looks like when somebody alters their photo to look closer to an ideal. Go through it hands-on with them, even on your own account to show them. Show them that when you spend a lot of time on social media, you tend to feel more isolated. You tend to feel more anxious and you tend to feel more jealous of other people. It leads to this feeling of actually less unity with other girls because of the, the very nature of the self-comparison that we're engaging in. So those are really potential things to watch out for. In addition to people who don't have your best interests in mind and all the other negative things that you could run into there. But mm -hmm. I think providing them a really honest list of all the things that come with social media allows them to maybe hold off a little bit longer on it or to go in with eyes wide open to be able to make good choices 
and have you as a partner there to have access, to have a password that you share and the ability to go in and see what kinds of stuff you're following, you know, just check in what kinds of content are we looking at these days? Who are we messaging? All of that should be within limits with a parent as like a trusted friend and partner in this whole social media venture. Definitely. I think um, the other thing to keep in mind is that we want to limit screen time on social media. There's too much research and too much personal experience that backs up that more time spent on social media leads directly to all those negative consequences Lindsay talked about. Self-objectification, body shame, self-comparison, loneliness, envy. Those are all real consequences, no matter how good you are at cultivating your feed. Now, when you are on social media, there is a way to cultivate your feed so that social media can be self-help instead of self-harm. You can do that by being really mindful of how you feel as you scroll. How do you feel with each person you're following and go through and really take note of that? Are you kind of hate following people? Are you just following them because you need to see what they're up to so you can scoff about it or see what they're wearing, even though you wouldn't wear it, but it's all fascinating to see if that's the case. Don't follow those people. Don't do it. Don't go down that rabbit hole. It will not serve you. On the other hand, there are amazing activists and creators that can open your eyes to a world that is so much bigger than the one you live in when you're young. It opens up your eyes to experts and activists and platforms that can help you see that you can make a difference in the world, that you can do good in the world, that you are not just a body. So one thing we see in really um, heavily visual social media like TikTok and Instagram is that um, the algorithm promotes two girls and women very body-centric and beauty-centric content. It does that on purpose. It does that to incite your insecurities, to cause you to buy things. There is so much... Um, money in place to make sure you stay on the app, that you keep scrolling to try to fulfill a need that is created by being on the app in an Mm -hmm. endless loop. So being able to be mindful of how you feel of what is being promoted to you, that is not promoted to your brother, that is not promoted to your best friend or your dad in the same way it is promoted to you, that that algorithm is not working to make you feel better about yourself. It is designed to make you feel worse about yourself. So you will spend more time there. That is such an important concept for kids to understand. Yeah. Avoid the explore page. I think as a general rule, we stay off the explore page, no matter who you are, adult or kid. Mm -hmm. It's not the Mm -hmm. content that we should be seeking. And oftentimes it's being funneled to us because other people in our circles are looking at it and it's some of the most harmful stuff. Mm Thank you for that. And, and it, it is also leading to that whole idea of doubling, as we mentioned, where you're now constantly evaluating, is this picture good enough for it to be online now? I'm not really sure. Let me take it from a different angle. It could be 200 pictures that we're now evaluating how my chin looks, how my side Mm -hmm. looks, you know, does this look too big? Does this look too small? Um, And, and how is it going to be perceived that you're taking yourself out and you're using your critic to, to evaluate that picture to see if it's up to snuff. Um, and, and again, remembering that when we're constantly just engaging with social media, we're not actually doing the thing that (laughs) that we want to be doing, right. Whatever it might've been going to see friends, going out to the pool, 
going for a run or a walk, because yeah. if we're constantly selfieing ourselves doing these things, then it is, how do I appear while I am swimming? How do I appear <laughs> while I'm going for a walk at the park <laughs> to take right. it from 20 different angles? But I'm just out for a walk. I love being out in the open, take 10,000 yeah. <laughs> pictures of myself while doing it. Oh, that's not quite right. Let me backtrack and do that again. Exactly. It's that takes away from the experience, right? <laughs> like that's what we right. call selfie objectification, just kind of like a tongue in cheek term going along with our, this idea of self-objectification where we're looking at ourselves as objects and we do that through selfies. And unfortunately, a lot of times in like the body image world, there will be campaigns that are like, show us your selfie. Do you yes. love your selfie? And what we don't see behind the scenes, like you said, is the 160 other selfies that they took from different lighting and different angles and then cropped and then filtered and then, you know, put a sparkle on top of it <laughs> to put on Instagram or TikTok. Yes. This is not, this does not promote body confidence. This promotes self-objectification. It promotes the idea of seeing your body as an object to be admired and judged and then gaining validation from the way people engage with it. And you know that because sometimes you'll think you have the best selfie ever and you've done all the cropping and filtering and editing and you put it up and it does not get the likes or the comments or the engagement yeah. that you wanted it to. So without that outside validation, is it improving your confidence? No, absolutely not. That's, you know, that's how we know the difference between improving your body image and, um, you know, seeking validation for how you look. And it is hard to tell the difference sometimes. And then we get the double layer of, uh, you know, the other people seeing the picture. And if it is being validated, then you're like, the other people are looking at it, friends and whatever. And they're like, wait, what about me? Am I, I don't look like that. Exactly. That it just sparks this vicious cycle of self-comparison that we're all doing, even with the people we know and love the most, it can be so tricky. So with this selfie objectification thing, we, we recommend that people kind of stop and take a moment to reflect on whether they are fully engaged in their lives or if they're splitting and Mm -hmm. thinking about and constantly conscious and anxious about how they look. Um, whether it's just in their minds or in the selfie and photo taking process where they're constantly trying to reflect an image of themselves that is ideal for the rest of the world on social media. It's another way that we double ourselves and value ourselves as bodies first and people second and, and ask for that validation from other people as well. Mm. I've cut way back on the yeah. amount of posting that I even just personally do on social media. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have found that when you're happier and more content with your life and feeling good, you engage less on mm-hmm. social yeah. media oh, yeah. as far as posting and sharing. Yes. I think it's good for people to try that as a practice, just to cut That's back. To do good less idea. Of your life. Yeah. So I, I wish we could be talking all day, but I, I want to get in like one or two small questions before we leave. And one of them is, you know, we, we often hear about health being wrapped up in with the idea of fat or thin. And so for those parents who I am sure have come to you and said these words and have come to me and said, well, you know, if my child comes to me and says, I don't want this fat on my body, I want to be thin or I want to be healthy. How can they answer that? kind of teasing apart the, the health and the weight thing from each other. 
Yeah, that's a great question. The first thing we need to do as adults is to tease apart those definitions for ourselves, because so many of us define our own health and fitness according to how much we weigh, what our body mass index is, or a dress size or some other external measurement. And this is a really faulty and ineffective way of evaluating our health and fitness. Yet we do it because it's easy. And, you know, we've learned our whole lives that your body size is a good stand in for how healthy or fit you are. In reality, and with tons of incredible research that's been coming out, especially over the last 10 years or so in physiology and exercise science, we know that people who are active are healthier than those who are inactive overall. And so we can judge our health and fitness much more effectively by our activity level than by our weight or our dress size. People who are overweight and active on average are healthier than those who are thin and sedentary. So it really kind of shatters the glass on this idea that thin is healthy and that fat is unhealthy. And so as adults, let's destabilize that in our own minds and, and get out of this idea that uh, when our kids say, um, oh, I'm fat, as parents, too often we say, no, you're not. You're beautiful. You're perfect. And it sets fat up in opposition to beauty or health or perfection or mm-hmm. being lovable. Mm-hmm. And so when kids come to us and say, I'm fat, which is a, a pretty regular thing that kids will start saying around, you know, four, five, six, depending on the environment that they're in. Yeah. Then as parents, we should, and as coaches and caretakers, We should hear something like that and recognize what they're really saying is, I'm afraid I'm not good enough. I'm afraid that I'm not lovable because I've learned from wherever that thinner is better. And that maybe someone told me that I'm not thin, or maybe I looked at my round belly and, and realized that I don't quite fit this ideal. Mm -hmm. And so what they're asking for is, am I good enough? And if we really believe that fat isn't good enough, we might say something like, no, you're beautiful. You're not fat. So what we should be doing is saying, um, we can say things like all bodies are come in different shapes and sizes. Mom and dad's bodies are different. Look at all the people in the world. We're all different. And what really matters is how we feel and what we can do. We can start to repeat the mantra. My body is an instrument, not an ornament. When your body is an instrument for your own use, your own experience and your own benefit, then it doesn't really matter what it looks like, what it matters, what matters is how you experience the world through this incredible body. So if you want to put the focus on actual health and fitness, then you can put the focus on what we do. What kinds of things does your kid do with their body that is that are enjoyable, that get their heart rate up, that get the focus on to what they are doing in the moment, as opposed to how they look in the moment. That's where I think some of the transformation can really start to happen. Yeah. I think we need to focus on the fact that for little kids, you cannot control their weight in the ways we think. And it is inappropriate to do so. To put a child on a diet or a weight loss regimen is damaging to their health. They are coming into their own, into their own bodies. On average, a typical child going through puberty will gain 40 pounds. For a lot of parents, they see that and they think, oh, shoot, oh, her body is not conforming to the ideals it used to, or I thought she was thin and she's getting fat. And I want to protect her from a world that is cruel to people that are fat. And the truth is you can't protect her in the ways you think you can, but you can help her to build resilience against these messages and to build the resilience that can tell her her body is good, Mm -hmm. that she is not in control of her weight, but she is in control of 
her healthy behaviors in a lot of ways, um, it, the way she can move her body in enjoyable ways that that um, beats those endorphins through her system that tells her that her body is amazing, that her body is an instrument by eating foods that help her to feel good, eating a variety of colorful foods. You know, when you have access to food, what a privilege to be able to eat in that way, mm, yes. being able to help kids understand that their bodies are instruments instead of ornaments is a paradigm shift that will serve them their whole lives. So please complete this sentence then. The most important step we can take to see ourselves as more than a body, as an instrument, not an ornament, is? To reconnect with our bodies when we are tempted to split. Hmm. To come back home into your physical body, your real sense of self, your embodiment with your physical senses in those moments where your heart rate increases, you're flushed, you're embarrassed of your body, and you're mentally making plans to hide or fix yourself. That is your trigger moment. That is your catalyst, your spark to say, I'm going to come back to myself. You can do it in really simple ways. We start with just some deep breathing soft belly breathing, literally relax your stomach as women, especially we've been taught to suck in our stomachs our entire lives. And in those moments where the disruption happens, release your abdominal muscles, take a deep breath that fills the bottom of your lungs, do it three times and repeat to yourself a mantra that resonates. Like I am more than a body. My body is an instrument, not an ornament. You know, we've said those things a million times and we hope people will memorize them and take them away for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. But when you want to split, reconnect, come back, mentally thank your body for all of the things that it allows you to do for the things that you have experienced. Think back to that little girl inside you that learned lies about her body that continue to affect you to this day, reconnect and heal to come back home. So well said, give us your top tip. Where can we, what, what, after listening to all the things that you said today, what would you say is your top tip for educators, for parents, for the people who love and work with kids in all different ways, what is the top tip that you would like them to come away with? I think it would go back to our mantra that our bodies are instruments, not ornaments. I hope that doesn't sound trite at this point, because I know we've said it a million times, but it is this paradigm shift that is really required for adults, for ourselves, and for adults who are working with children. When you aren't valuing your body for how it appears and are instead back inside your body, valuing your experience in the world, that is how we can also appropriately value other people and not reduce them to bodies, regardless of what we might think about their appearance or their weight or anything else. Mm -hmm. I think that allows us to take a really neutral approach to people's bodies that reflects in the ways that we treat them and act toward them. And kids really take that in. And mm -hmm. it also reflects compassion for their bodies, for your body, for the fact that we are growing up and growing older in a world that makes it really difficult just to have a body and feel okay about it. That makes it really easy to monitor yourself from the outside self-consciously instead of experiencing a state of flow, instead of experiencing real creativity, passion, joy, excitement, we sit out of our lives because we believe that we are ornamental and that our ornaments will never be good enough as they are. And in that way, we're causing kids, we're causing ourselves to live less full, happy, hopeful lives. And so 
in this more compassionate place where you see your own body as an instrument for your use and you see other people's bodies the same way, you help encourage them to live, to get out there and do the thing they're scared to do, to compete against all those messages telling them otherwise, telling them to stay small and play small. Instead, you are in this way that feels so small, doing something so deeply impactful to help yourself and the world know that we are all more. And that when you know you're more, ooh, you have work to do. Mm-hmm. You have work to show the rest of the world that the impact we can all make when we get back home inside our bodies and reclaim our humanity is just, oh, it's so powerful. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Yes, yes, yes. It is something that we all need to have passion about because when we send these messages to our kids that they can do anything in these beautiful bodies that they've been given, that the that they're beautiful because they allow us to do our favorite things. They allow us to discover our gifts. They allow us to share our gifts with the world. That's, that is a, a very powerful moment for kids and, uh, and that they can take that with them, with them for their whole lives. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, uh, your book and the work you're doing? Our book is more than a body. Your body is an instrument, not an ornament. It's available everywhere in hardcover paperback as of December 28th and uh, in Audible and Kindle and everything else. Our Instagram is where we share our most up-to-date resources. Um, It's beauty underscore redefined. And then our website is morethanabody.org. Excellent. Thank you so very much for being on the show today, Dr. Lindsay and Dr. Lexi Kite, for all of your insights and your strategies today, for sharing the messages, the mantras, the questions, and the just critical analysis that helps us to open our eyes and realize how we can be part of the problem or we can be an amazing part of the solution, bringing these ideas forward, helping our kids to reclaim themselves and, and live in their bodies in a way that, that lets them do amazing things with their lives. So thank you for being on the show today. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Yes, you too. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. You can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash Dr. Robin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman, and I will be going back and forth with Dr. Lindsay and Dr. Lexi Kite talking all about these concepts, quoting them because they had some great, great quotes today. We'll put those on memes so that you can share them with the world. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so others can learn about these arts outstanding solutions and use them in their own homes, their own schools, their own businesses. I can't tell you how much these five-star reviews mean to me. They have been so touching. Thank you for taking the time to go up there and review this podcast. And the more that you are able to do that, the more exposure it gets, the more people can use these in their own homes, and the more that we impact these kids in really profound and wonderful ways. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. 
I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this, you're here, you're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. You may have heard something today and you said, oh, my child said this and I said that. I completely messed up. Don't do that to yourself. There is always a time to go back and say, I want to do this again. That conversation you brought up, I want to have that again. That thing that you said to me, I want to respond differently. Can we talk about this again? There's always moments for that. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.